0: Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast and welcome to all of our new subscribers and a warm welcome to all of our loyal listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the reading of the Darley Routier trial testimony. Now I'm on day eight of the trial which occurred on January 15th of 1997. On this day there are four witnesses, Officer David Main, who we heard from in Episode 70. Officer Charles Hamilton, who was in Episode 72. And then there are two left for today, Oki Williams and the first of several parts of James Cron. Now, in today's episode, we're going to hear from Oki Williams, who's an employee of Bank One in Rowlett, and she testified that Darren applied for a loan on June 1st, and it was declined. Now, after her testimony, we'll then hear the first portion of testimony from James Cron. And James Cron was a retired crime scene analyst, and he claimed that on the morning of June the 6th, when he went to the house, that the scene inside the Routier home had been staged. And that the one who committed these crimes was someone from inside the home. So before we begin with Oki Williams, let's recap really quick what we learned in the last episode. So in the last episode, we heard from Officer Hamilton. And it talks about the investigation of the crime scene. He essentially handled the fingerprints. And he had started with the garage window where it was assumed that the intruder had either come in or left. And he just used this standard technique, a black processing powder and tape to lift the prints from this window. He did find five latent prints from the lower portion of the window inside the garage. And two of these prints, it should be noted, 85-a and 85-b are duplicates, but they were made from the same impression, so they must have been really good prints to have this impression. He went outside. He well, first while well, he's still inside the garage, he does check further on the interior of the window and the glass, and everything. He found no other fingerprints. He went outside, uh, did not find any glass or any fingerprints on the glass outside or that exterior portion of that same garage window. And the thing is, though, is that this lack of prints, it was not really unusual. Um, The environment plays a huge role in whether or not fingerprints will actually still be available. So once he was done with this outside portion, he then went into the house to begin getting more fingerprints from within the home and he did find some on the door that led from the garage to the utility room slash laundry room, however you want to refer to it. And these were found particularly around the handle, but no prints were found on several surfaces as he moved into the kitchen, including the refrigerator, the countertops, the drawer handles, and even the broken wine glass stem, which was on the ground um, in the kitchen. So, this kind of leads you to wonder, I mean, either either this place within this you know relatively small amount of time from between when the crime actually occurred and everybody took off, that somebody went around the house and wiped everything down. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And this is only my theory, because, you know, drawer handles are touched, refrigerator doors are touched, especially if you have kids in the home. There's just a lot of places where you would think to find fingerprints just naturally throughout your home, but there was nothing that I don't understand that. But anyway, over several days, uh, Officer Hamilton also collected blood samples uh, from various locations, including the kitchen, the family room, um, and the hand railing leading upstairs, which was something new to me in that episode. So when Officer Hamilton was questioned about how he went about to... um, grab these fingerprints from all of these locations he did admit that he used pretty basic methods um and but that he could have used had it been available a product called ninhydrin, which is a chemical compound uh, where you essentially spray it on and it reacts with the acids in sweat it will produce a purple or blue color and it will make the fingerprints very visible And this method is really useful on porous surfaces, and it could have been used for a more thorough examination. But at the time, it was not, it was just the black fingerprint powder. And his approach also during the, while the defense was questioning him, the approach that he had to documentation in detail um, was kind of scrutinized because he didn't make, when Hamilton like especially went out to the backyard and checked around the the latch of the fence out there somebody had thought that they had seen blood and so he went out there to test for it and it came back negative but he never recorded this when he was asked about uh, checking his shoes for blood or glass um, he said that he couldn't recall that Uh, personally I'm a little shocked that they didn't cover their shoes or do something when they walked into the crime scene Officer Hamilton then also testified that Catherine Long, who is a forensic serologist at the Institute of Forensic Science in Dallas, had asked him to go back and take a photograph of the kitchen sink. So that's kind of where we ended up with him. Uh, If you want to listen to the entire thing again, that is episode number 72, and it goes into much greater detail. So with all that said, let's start with the testimony of Oki Williams, and the questioning of Oki uh, is begun by Ms. Sherry Wallace, a part of the prosecution team. Tell us your name, please. My name is Oki Williams. How do you spell your first name? O-K-I-E. Are you married? Yes. Do you have any kids? I have two children. Where do you work, Mrs. Williams? I work at Bank One in Roulette. How long have you worked at the Bank One in Roulette? About seven and a half years. Okay, what job do you have now? I work as a personal banker. Okay, before, and then the court pipes up and says, can everybody hear this witness? All right. Miss Sherry Wallace then continues with her questioning. Miss Williams, have you ever testified before? No. Before you started working as a personal banker in Rowlett at Bank One, what did you do there at the bank? I worked as a teller about five and a half years and as a customer service rep about a year. When were you promoted to personal banker? January 1st of 1996. Let me ask you, Mrs. Williams, did you have a customer who you knew to be Darren Routier? Yes. Okay. How did you know him as a customer? just know him there through the bank? Yes. How long have you known Mr. Routier? Quite a while. I remember him when I worked as a teller. I knew him. Mrs. Williams, let me show you what's been admitted into evidence as State's Exhibit 54. Do you recognize that? Yes. Who is that a picture of? Darren Routier. Okay. On directing your attention back to June 1st of 1996, were you working at Bank One? In Rolette, then? Yes. Do you remember what day of the week that was, June the 1st? I believe that was Saturday. I'm sorry? Saturday. Okay. Are you all open on Saturday there at the bank? Yes, from 9 to 1. Okay. Did Mr. Routier come in the bank that day? No. Okay. Did you talk to him about a loan application on that day? Yes. Okay. Where did you do that? Pardon? Where did you all discuss the loan application on this of June the 1st? Bank one in Rowlett. Okay. Mr. John Hegler then says, your honor, and the court then says, you are going to have to speak up, ma'am. People cannot hear you. Mr. Douglas Mulder then says, judge, apparently this is a loan or some sort of commercial transaction between the husband and his, this bank. The court then says, are we going to get relevant on this, what are we doing? Miss Sherry Wallace then says, yes, Your Honor, since this is a community property state, then this will go to show the defendant's state of mind just days before the offense. Mr. Mulder then says, Judge, that is kind of stretching things just a little bit. They are going to go into some, I take it, some transaction that the husband was attempting with this bank. Is that right? Miss Sherry Wallace Wallace then says, Judge, the records will also show the court says, just a minute, all right, just a minute. Can the jury step outside, please? Court says, all right. And then as soon as the jury is outside, the court then says, let the record reflect that these proceedings are being held outside the presence of the jury. All parties at trial are present. Now let's get right to the point. And Ms. Sherry Wallace then says, your honor, the defense counsel saw a copy of this loan at the same time they were given state's exhibit 50. Court says, all right. Miss Wallace continues and says, this loan is a loan for a vacation that the husband of the defendant attempted to get days before the offense and was turned down. And Mr. Mulder says, well, big deal. The court says, all right, thank you. Then that is what the testimony is going to be. Miss Wallace says, it will. The court says, all right, any questions? Mr. Mulder says, well, any questions of her? The court then says, yes, I mean, any objections to make. Mr. Hagler says, yes, Your Honor, our objection, Your Honor, is that it's not relevant under Rule 401, and it would be confusing and misleading to the jury. Furthermore, it applies to the defendant's husband and not herself. The court then says, all right, overruled. I will let the testimony in. You can have a running objection to it. Mr. Hagler says, okay, including a 403 ruling to, Your Honor, the court then says, yes, I think the probative value outweighs any prejudicial effect, and I want you to stay on that point, Miss Wallace. Miss Wallace then says, I intend to, your honor. Mr. Mulder then says, judge, this was so quick. I may have missed the probative value. Could you tell me what the probative value is? The court then says, I think it's going to be more probative value than it is going to be prejudicial to your client you are going to have a running objection to this testimony. Mr. Mulder then says, well, I still didn't understand what the probative value was. The court says, well, the probative value was stated by Ms. Wallace out there. So we're going to go forward right now. You can have a running objection. Let's bring the jury back in. So I'm just going to pause here because this was quite a bit of conversation with some uh, terms that many of us, including myself, was not familiar with. So essentially what probative value is, is it refers to how much a piece of evidence in a legal case contributes to proving or disproving something important. Essentially, it's about how useful the evidence is in showing that a particular fact or a claim is true or false. And then there was also the mention of a running objection Essentially, this is a continuous objection made by an attorney in a trial, which allows them to disagree with a line of questioning or evidence without having to object each time it occurs. So let's continue. I hope that was helpful. Let's continue. At this point, the jury is brought back into the room and Miss Sherry Wallace continues her questioning to Okie Williams. And the question is: let's see, Miss Williams. Where were we on June the 1st? I think you said it was a Saturday and your bank is open that day. Did Darren Routier come to the bank to fill out a loan application on Saturday, June the 1st of 1996? Yes, okay. Who did he speak with? Myself, okay. Did you fill out the loan application? I wrote it down as he was giving me the information. Tell the members, if you would, members of the jury, if you would, if I came in, or if Mr. Root here came in and got a loan application, what happens then? We fax it to our data entry and they will input all of the information in the system. And then our, one of our underwriters will determine whether they are going to approve the loan or not. So do you make the decision about the loan right there at the bank or does someone else do it? Someone else, mm-hmm. Our central underwriting does it, okay? So after you prepared the application with Mr. Routier, in this case, what did you do? The loan was turned down, so I left a message for him to give me a call. And I think I called him, I don't know when exactly, but Monday I talked to him and we tried to resubmit with collateral. And did you try, you did resubmit the loan there on Monday? Yeah, to go back to the central underwriter people. Yes, the same underwriters what happened on Monday the 3rd? We couldn't use the, we couldn't, they denied the loan because, I'm sorry, they did or did not deny the loan. They denied the loan. Okay. And that was on Monday the 3rd for the second time. Yes. What was the amount of that loan? It was $5,000 even. Miss Williams, let me show you what's been marked for identification as State's Exhibit No. 51 and ask if you recognize that. Yes. What is it? It's a loan application along with the worksheet, whether it's been approved or not. Are these in State's Exhibit 51 the record for Darren Routier's loan or attempted loan in June of 1996? Yes. Okay. And do you... You, as an employee of the bank, are these records kept in the normal course of business? Yes. Okay. Are they kept on a day to day, week to week, and month to month basis? Yes. Okay. And do you have care, custody, and control of these documents? Yes. At this point, Ms. Wallace says we will offer state's exhibit number no. 51 into evidence and tender a copy to the defense counsel. They have one, but here is the original. And Mr. Mulder of the defense says, we just have a copy of it. It's not real clear. And Mr. Mosty says, I understand the court has already ruled on this. The court then says, yes, we already have. Thank you. Mr. Mulder says, judge, we have already voiced our objection. The court says, all right, thank you. State's exhibit number 51 is admitted. Ms. Wallace then continues her questioning. Ms. Williams, using this document to refresh your recollection, you can take it, what's the reason for the $5,000 loan? When he first came in, he mentioned that at this point, Mr. John Hagler of the defense team says, excuse me, I would object to any hearsay statements by Darren Routier. The court then says, all right, let's rephrase the question. Let's phrase our questions properly, please. Ms. Sherry Wallace then continues, you can't get into what he said just what did you put down as the reason for the $5,000 loan on the application? Vacation. Okay. And do you remember about what time he came in, Miss Williams, that day? It was before noon. Okay. Yeah, before noon. Okay. On the second sheet of state's exhibit number, and it says one, but this is something wrong in the transcript, Do you have indicated on there what time that loan was turned down that day? It looks like about 11.47, but I'm not quite certain exactly what time. Did Mr. Routier wait in the bank to see if he got the loan or not? No. He left after he signed the loan application. Did you speak to him that day, that Saturday? No. What did you do after you received that fax that he was turned down? I'm not quite certain if I left a message on Saturday or Monday. I'm not quite certain about that. But did you talk to him on Monday? Yes. Okay. What did you tell him at that point? I told him I was sorry, but the loan was turned down. Miss Williams, you cannot get into what he said, but what was his tone with you? At this point, Mr. Mosty of the defense team says, that is speculation, your honor. And the court then says, I'll sustain the objection the witness then says his voice. The court then says, just a minute, ma'am. The way we do it down here, when I sustain an objection, you have to wait for the next question. The witness then says, oh, I'm sorry. Court says, don't worry about a thing. Now they will ask you another question, and then they are going to ask you some questions. The witness says, okay. And the court then says, all right, go ahead. Ms. Wallace then continues. Ms. Williams, was he happy about being turned down? Mr. Mosty then says speculation the court then says I'll sustain the objection Miss Wallace says your honor she talked Mr. Mosty then says your honor are we going to argue this out in front of the court the court then says we are we're not going to argue it we are just going to just ask the next question Miss Wallace then says Miss Williams did you tell him the reason he was turned down yes okay and were those is that contained on States Exhibit No. 51? Yes. Okay. Let me show you what's been marked for identification as States Exhibit No. 51-A. Is this a code from your bank of those reasons? Yes. Okay. If you could look at States Exhibit 51-A to refresh your recollection, tell the members of the jury the reason Mr. Routier was turned down for his loan. Mr. Mosty then says, Your Honor, before we start referring to documents, we need to see the document. The court then says, "All right, if you could show that to the defense, please." Miss Wallace says, "Yes, sir." Mr. Mosty then says, "Thank you." Miss Sherry Wallace then says, "May I proceed, your honor?" And the court says, "You may." And she continues with her questioning. Miss Williams, referring to 51-A, could you tell the jury why Mr. Routier was turned down for this $5,000 loan? All four of them Please. Okay. Excessive obligation in relation to income, an excessive amount owed on revolving accounts, and too many new accounts and delinquent past or present credit obligations with others. Ms. Wallace then continues her questioning. Miss Routier, after you gave them that information, excuse me, Miss Williams, after you gave Mr. Routier that information, you said that he wanted to try additional collateral and resubmit the loan. Is that correct? Yes. From his request, did you resubmit the loan with the underwriters? Yes. And what happened that time? It was turned down and they, oh, what were you going to say, Ms. Williams? The only way that they will approve the loan was if it was CD secured. Okay and he didn't have that CD or money available, or he didn't offer that to you, did he? No. Okay. When did you give him this information about it being turned down for the second time? I'm not quite certain, but it could have been Monday or Tuesday. Tuesday being June the 4th of 1996? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Miss Wallace then says, we will pass the witness, and the court then said, Mr. Mulder. And the cross-examination by the defense, Darley's defense team, begins with Mr. Douglas Mulder. Miss Williams, you have some code up there or something? Yes, sir. Okay. That you are referring to? Yes. And this is a I guess you can just put the number on someone's loan application so you don't have to put out the whole reason. Is that the way it works? The underwriters will put the code in to let us know why they are denying the loan. Okay. When you say underwriters, this isn't a Texas. Bank One is, in fact, none of the banks up in Dallas are Texas owned, are they? Pardon? North Carolina. And we've got, I think Bank One is up in Ohio, isn't it? Folks up in Ohio own Bank One? Yes, sir. Okay. And this looks to me like this is a codified deal where you've got 40 reasons that you turn down loans but you are able to... Is this it? Am I reading that right? Yes, sir. Insufficient real estate equity, customer withdrew application, excessive credit bureau inquiries, but they are all listed. All the reasons that you turn down loans are listed from 1 to 40. Are they not? Yes, sir. Okay. And I guess you all finally decided that if you wanted to loan him $5,000 for a vacation, he would have to put up a certificate of deposit. Is that right? No, sir, not necessarily. If they have a good credit history, I do not approve the loan. But normally, if they have a good credit history, they will determine whether they are going to approve the loan or not. We don't have control over that. Well, I know you obviously recommend it or you wouldn't have sent it on. Is that right? I don't recommend anything. Okay. If the customer comes in, we cannot deny any customers if that is what they want to do we have to do it if they fill out an application you have got to send it on exactly okay and you send it up to the people up in ohio no sir okay they have a centralized location in the dallas area i don't know exactly where okay but we fax it to the certain fax number which is data entry so you don't where the people are that are making the comments in Dallas. All right. Okay. You fax it over to them, the application? Yes, sir. And they fax you back, back an answer? No, they don't. They input the information as it is written on the loan application. And then one of our central underwriters, they will review them. And then they will let us know whether it's been approved or not. And they will fax us the worksheet. Okay. So they faxed you back a worksheet and showed you that this was not had not been approved? Denied. Denied? Okay. And suggested that if he wanted a loan, he would have to put up some CDs. Isn't that what it says? No, normally we tell the customer that it's denied. At that time, they will try to get a loan using their collateral as a, I mean, using their vehicle or whatever as as collateral. But in this case, they denied the loan. Okay. On the copy I have got, it says, quote, attention, Oki, customer does not qualify for a loan at bank one unless it is CD secured. That is the second time. When I resubmitted it at that time, the same underwriter said, Oki, this is the only way we can approve the loan. He would have to put up a $5,000 CD and in effect borrow his own money back from you all. Is that the way it works? Well, that depends on his credit history. Yes. Okay. But in this case, what you wanted him to do was put up a $5,000 CD and then borrow that money back from you all. Yeah. Okay. That is what, if he did that, what would you charge him? Probably five or six percent interest. Ms. Wallace then says, I will object to relevance. The court then says overruled. Mr. Mulder continues. What would you charge him on a little old? If it's a $5,000, it would be 10%. At the time, it was 10%. I'm not quite sure, but I think it was 10%. What does that mean? And he points to the exhibit. Oh, that doesn't mean a thing. 16% doesn't mean anything? No, sir. This is a denied loan. So always there is 16%. But when the loan is approved using $5,000 CD as a collateral, Then the loan rate will be changed to 10% at that time, if I am not mistaken. Okay. So if he, what you were telling, what the folks from Ohio, what their policy is, not Ohio. Well, that's where it's owned, isn't it? I understand that, but I'm dealing with Dallas. So I understand. So we'll leave them out. But they answer to the folks up in Ohio, don't they? In my understanding, I think directly in the Dallas area. All right. But at any rate, the chairman of the board or whoever is running Bank One, his policy was that in this case, if he wanted to borrow 5000 he could bring in a $5,000 certificate of deposit and the bank would loan him that $5,000 and they would reduce the rate from 16% down to 10%. Is that right? Because it's secured. Well, yes. If it's unsecured, the rate will be a little bit higher. That is just common sense. Well, no, I understand that. So that is kind of a can't lose. That's the kind of deal that we all like, isn't it? Except the guy who is borrowing it. If they have a past credit history, there is no reason to put up a CD as a collateral. Okay, thank you. But if it's necessary, then they want some kind of collateral. What were you paying on your CDs just out of curiosity back then was it less than 3% Miss Wallace then says I'll object to relevance the court then says overruled if she knows I'll let her answer the witness then says well at the time it depends on the terms it depends on the terms it's different Mr. Mulder then says okay so i don't know what kind of term that you want to know say a 12 month CD a 1 year CD okay about I'm not quite certain, but I'm guessing about four and a half, 4.7. If it was a promotion, it could have been higher, about five percent. OK, so you will make five percent on a deal like that without any risks, right? I don't make any." No, I understand." Mr. Mulder then says, "That's all we've got, Thank you." And the court then says, "All right, any further questions?" Mr. Mulder says, "One last thing." You never talked to Darley, did you? Well, about this particular transaction? No, sir. You don't even know that she knew anything about it, do you? I only saw Darren and I have not seen Darley at that time. Okay. Mr. Mulder then says, thanks. That's all. Ms. Sherry Wallace says nothing further. At this time, the court then says, uh, thank you, uh, your next witness. And the next witness on the list is the beginning of the James Cron testimony. And the direct examination is being done by Mr. Greg Davis of the prosecution. Sir, would you please tell us your full name? James Cron. Spell your last name C R O N. Mr. Cron, you live in Dallas County? Yes. Okay. How are you employed at this time? I'm a consultant in the field of crime scene research, fingerprints, and physical evidence. All right. Recently, within the last few years, have you been retired from the Dallas Sheriff's Department? Yes. Okay. And how long were you with the Dallas Sheriff's Department? 29 years. Okay. And before the Dallas Sheriff's Department, were you employed in law enforcement? Yes. And where were you employed? As a civilian employee with the Dallas Police Department. All right. Let's start with the Dallas Police Department first. What were your duties while you were there with the Dallas Police Department? Well, in 1958, I joined the Dallas Police Department as a civilian employee in the crime scene search section, and my duties involved clerical work and assisting in processing evidence. And I learned at that time some of the officers taught me crime scene investigation and photography. All right. How long were you with the Dallas Police Department? Six years. Okay, so when did you start with the Sheriff's Department in Dallas? In 1964. Okay, what were your duties with the Dallas Sheriff's Department? In 1964, when I joined the Dallas Sheriff's Department, it was as a deputy sheriff assigned to the Identification Bureau. My duties involved the keeper of the fingerprint files and the crime scene search investigations. Okay, you were talking about the Identification Bureau. Do they deal with fingerprints? Yes. Okay. For instance, would they deal with inmates' fingerprints of people in the Dallas County Jail, for instance? Yes. You also mentioned that you were with the crime scene department there at the Sheriff's Department. What were your duties with that section? Well, in the Identification Bureau, part of the duties involved not only keeper of the fingerprint records of the inmates, but it was crime scene investigation. In 1972, I was promoted to sergeant and told to create a separate section that devoted all of its time to crime scene search activity, and that was the physical evidence section. I remained commander of it for 21 years. During that time, I was promoted to lieutenant but I was commander of the physical evidence section for 21 years, and I retired in 93 as a lieutenant of that section. Okay, in 1993, were you still the commander of the physical evidence section at that time? Yes, I was its only commander from the time it was formed in 1972 until the time I retired. Okay, the total number of years now that you have been in law enforcement doing crime scene work and dealing with fingerprints, etc. How many years? 39 years, counting my consulting time, which I devote to crime scene search matters. Are you a member at this present time of any professional associations or societies? Yes. What associations or societies are you presently a member of? I assume you're talking about those that deal with the crime scene search matters? Yes, sir. International Association for Identification and the Texas Division of the International Association for Identification. What is the Society for Identification? What is that? It's an international society of people in the profession of physical in dealing with physical evidence and forensic sciences, any aspect of crime scene investigation. Okay. In the past, have you been a member of any other societies or associations dealing with that area? Yes. Could you just name a few of those for us, please? International Association for Bloodstain Analy- Analysts, the Homicide Investigator, Association of Homicide Investigators of Texas, that's two of them. Okay. Can you give us a brief overview of the training either through universities or the like or other police agencies that you have received in crime scene reconstruction fingerprints, the area that you are now a consultant in? Yes. Uh, In addition to my 39 years, beginning in 58 at the police department in Dallas and the sheriff's department in the consulting business, I have attended numerous schools dealing with physical evidence and latent print subjects, some of them being at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, Burlington County College in New Jersey, Toronto, Canada Police Department, regional police academies and sheriff's department's academies, in the state of Texas, Council of Government in Arlington, Texas, which is a north-central Texas area training academy. I have attended courses put on by the Northwestern University out of Illinois, the National Law Enforcement Institute, and, well, that is the primary courses. And I did mention, I believe, that those courses involved crime scene search procedures, latent print development and comparison, photography, and matching of physical evidence. I now teach in the subject of crime scene search, latent print development and comparison, and crime scene search procedures in general. Some of the places I have taught or still teach at are SMU, Texas A&M, Dallas Baptist University, Texas Women's University in Denton, Dallas County Community College District, local sheriff's departments in the Dallas, I mean in Texas, and police departments. I have taught at Tacoma, Washington, Denver, Colorado Police Department, and just Navarro County Junior College in those areas. I have had material written or published that I have written on the subject of evidence, photography, laser usage in law enforcement, and ethics of law enforcement consultants. These have been published in technical journals, some of them being the Fingerprint Identification Magazine, the Journal for Forensic Identification. I have received approximately 150 awards and commendations through my career. And when I retired, I received the Governor's Law Enforcement Achievement Award for excellence in my field of law enforcement. I am now the chairman of, well, not chairman. I am a member of the Committee for Crime Scene Certification in Texas. I have been chairman of the Latent Prince Certification Committee. I was on that committee for three years in Texas. Okay. You talked about your certification in crime scene search and also in latent fingerprint identification. Are there certain certificates that you now hold in your specialties? Yes. Okay. What certificates do you presently hold? I am a certified latent print examiner and a certified senior crime scene analyst. Okay. With regards to the latent fingerprint identification, what sort of requirements do you have to meet to become certified as you are? on latent prints? Yes, sir. On the latent print, when there is, it's a several part test. Some of it is involving comparing unknown prints with known prints. There's very little margin for error. They have changed the test somewhat now. I believe you can miss two out of 10. There is a written test, an oral exam, and a mock trial, and a background check too of the committee to see if the people are qualified and their other schooling fits our criteria. What other certifications do you hold? The Senior Crime Scene Analyst. Okay. Is there any level higher than a Senior Crime Scene Analyst in that particular field? No. Not from the International Association of Identification, which issues the certification? Mr. Cron, in your 39 years, have you had occasion to go out and investigate crime scenes and process crime scenes? Yes. This may be a hard question. You got any ballpark figure of the number of crime scenes that you have gone out to in 39 years? Yes. I was asked that in another case, and I have some and had done some research on that, and counting civil cases and crime scene cases, all cases, I have been involved in the last 38 years, 39 years, is approximately 21,000. Okay. And of the 21,000 crime scenes, do you know about how many of those would deal with death cases? With deaths, it was approximately 4,300. Okay. And included in those death cases, would there be homicides? Yes, all deaths, homicides, are some of them. Okay, just a couple of things. Before we came down here to Kerrville, did you and I, had we had occasion to talk about this case before? Yes, both in person and over the telephone, we have talked, haven't we? Yes, have I met you at my office on some occasions? Yes, have we ever met together out at 5801 Eagle Drive? Once, okay, Since we have been down here in Kerrville, have we talked about your testimony and about the case? Yes. Okay. By the way, are you being paid to testify in this case, Mr. Cron? No. How long have you had to be down here in Kerrville? I came down last Tuesday, flew back Friday night, came back Sunday, so going on two weeks. All right. Well, let me, if I can, let's go here to June the 6th of 1996. Let me ask you whether sometime early in the morning on June 6, 1996, if you received a call from the dispatcher for the Rowlett Police Department. I did. Okay. And do you remember about what time it was that you were called? Yes, it was around 5 a.m. Okay. And how far away from Rowlett do you live? I never did. It's about a 15-minute drive. You live in generally the same area, the northeastern part of Dallas County, right? Yes. Okay. What information were you given when you were called by the dispatcher? What did you understand that she wanted you to do? The dispatcher didn't relay much information. It just said that the crime scene officers from Rowlett asked if I would meet them on Eagle Drive. They had a homicide investigation that they would like my assistance on. Okay, had you had some prior association with the Rowlett Police Department prior to June 6th of 1996? Yes, over the past 15 or 20 years. Okay, I guess just trying to understand why they called you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you had been associated with Rowlett prior to that date? Well, through the Sheriff's Office Physical Evidence Section, I dealt with them for many years. Since I retired from 93, I have conducted three different schools there for their officers. Okay. Did you go out to 5801 Eagle Drive in Rowlett? Yes. Do you know about what time you arrived at the scene, sir? Yes, it was about approximately 545. All right. And when you got there, did you meet with anyone? Yes. Do you recall who you met with first? Sergeant Neighbors, Officer Main, and Sergeant Matt Walling. Where did you meet these people? Well, they came towards my car when I pulled up. It was on the street at my car. Okay, what was the condition of the crime scene when you got there at 545 or 6 o'clock that morning? The exterior? Yes, sir oh, there was a barrier tape around the perimeter. All right. When you first talked with David Main, Matt Walling, and David Neighbors, were you still outside the taped area? Yes. Did you remain outside the taped area or did you move inside at some point? We eventually moved inside. Did you continue talking with them? Yes. In general, what types of things were you talking about with these gentlemen about? Well, I asked them, you know, what type of situation did they have? I mean, I was informed it was a homicide. And I asked them how many bodies and did it occur inside or outside the house? Mr. John Hagler of the defense team then says, Your Honor, we would object to hearsay statements of this witness under Rule 802. The court then says, well, I'll sustain that. Just say what you said. Mr. Greg Davis says, well, this witness is testifying. I asked him what he said. The court then says, well, we understand that. I'm sure that is just a precautionary objection. Mr. Greg Davis then continues, Mr. Cron, again, you can relate to us what you may have said to these officers. Don't relate back what they said. But were you asking questions of them? Yes. What types of questions did you ask them out there that morning? I asked them I needed to know what areas would I need to be looking at concerning the evidence. I need to know if it was inside or outside or a combination of both at the scene. How many victims? I knew it was two stories, so I needed to know what was upstairs and downstairs. Did you have a chance to talk specifically with Sergeant Matt Walling, ask him questions also? I did. Okay. And again, these conversations, are they still being held outside the house at this point? It was a running conversation, but yes, at that point it was outside. Okay. And did you have some purpose in talking with these officers? Did you plan to do something after you spoke with them? Yes. And what did you plan to do after you finished speaking with them? To inspect or walk through the scene? Okay. Inside 5801 Eagle? Yes. Okay, can you tell the members of the jury, what is the purpose of walking through a crime scene? To, well, to get a game plan organized, to see, do a visual inspection, not really doing anything, but visually inspecting the crime scene to determine what action, what equipment you need. And well, that is basically it, have a game plan to collect and process it properly. Did you feel that it was necessary to talk with the officers there before you came up with your game plan? Oh, yes. Necessary to get information back from them? Yes. Do you recall what time it was that you actually began walking through this crime scene? It was, there was an officer logging in the time, but my recollection is it was 610 or 611 right in there. All right, did you, in fact, enter into the house? Yes. Okay. Who did you go into the house with? Sergeant Walling, Matt Walling, and Main, David Main. Okay. Before you actually went into the house, did you see anything at the front of the house that caught your attention that you made a mental note of? Well, the only thing that was unusual would be the front porch where there was some blood and it looked like medical, you know, I'm trying to think of the word, Tape and medical supplies. Okay, let me see if I can get a photograph and have you look at it, Mr. Kron. If you will look at State's Exhibit 24, do you recognize what's depicted in that photograph, sir? Yes, okay. What is depicted in State's Exhibit number 24? A bloody rag or cloth. Okay. Were these items still in the same position when you went into the house as they are shown here in State's Exhibit number 24? Yes. Anything else that you noticed there on the front porch before you went inside the house? Not anything outstanding. All right. Where did you go to next once you went inside the house? I went into the foyer and leading into the hallway to go to the rear of the house. All right. And what did you and the other three officers do once you went into the foyer? It was strictly for observation purposes. I just looked at the floor, the walls, the ceiling, and the adjacent rooms to the left and right. Okay, did you have a chance to look into the living room, which is to the left? Yes. Did you notice anything unusual when you looked inside the living room? Nothing unusual. I was looking for the unusual and I didn't see anything. What sorts of things were you looking for when you looked in the living room? Well, the obvious thing, of course, what I was looking for at first was blood or what appeared to be blood. Didn't see any blood in the living room? No. How about the in the entryway and the hallway? There was blood in the entryway and hallway. All right. What did you do once you observed the entryway and the hallway? What did you do? continued on down the hallway to the place, what would be called the family room or den and kitchen. Okay. And when you got to the family room, what is it that you did at that point? Observed, saw, you want me to tell you what I saw? Yes, sir. There was several areas on the carpet that had excessive amounts of blood. There was a dead child in the back part of the room and the coffee table was sort of knocked ajar, and that was it, and blood. I didn't do a detailed hands-on examination at that point. Okay, well, as you are doing this walkthrough, is the purpose of this walkthrough to collect or to touch or move evidence? No. Are you simply observing at this point? Yes. The other three officers with you are they still with you observing like you are? Yes. You had mentioned when you went inside the family room that you noticed a flower arrangement. Is that correct? Well, there was a coffee table and yes, it had a flower arrangement on top of it. Okay. Let me ask you, Mr. Cron, if you will, please look at States Exhibit 47-A and 47-B. First of all, 47 A, does that truly and accurately depict a portion of the family room as it appeared when you walked through there on June 6, 1996? Yes. States Exhibit 47 B. Do you recognize that picture also? Does it truly and accurately depict that portion of the family room as it appeared on June 6, 1996? Yes. Mr. Cron, looking at the flower arrangement shown in State's Exhibit Number 47-A, did you see that when you walked in there that morning, sir? Yes. Did you have an opportunity to visually inspect that flower arrangement? Yes. Did you also have a chance to look at the glass table that the vase and the flowers were on? I did. Okay. Now, when you had an opportunity to look at this flower arrangement, sir. Did you inspect it to determine whether or not you could see any blood or any, on any of the floral arrangement itself? Some of my inspection and closer inspection of it came after the initial walkthrough, but yes, I did inspect it, okay? Let me ask you, were you able to see any blood on the flower arrangement itself? No, okay. How about the flowers? The stems or any of the leaves here, did you inspect it to determine whether or not any of the flowers or any of the other elements of the flower arrangement had been broken? I did. And was anything broken on this flower arrangement, sir? I couldn't see any broken parts. Did you have a chance to look at the vase also? Yes. Did you try to determine whether or not you could see any blood on the vase? I did. And what was the result? It was negative, I didn't see any blood. Okay. How about the vase itself? Could you see any evidence that it was broken, chipped, or damaged in any way when you saw it on June 6th, 1996? No, it appeared to be intact. Okay, let me ask you about the glass top, the area surrounding the flower arrangement. Did you look at the area to determine whether or not you could see any sort of cracks or breaks or defects in the glass anywhere around this flower arrangement, sir? Yes. Okay. Any chips perhaps out of it? Did you look for those also? I did. Sir, could you see any damage whatsoever on the top portion of that glass top when you looked at it on June 6th, 1996? No. The items shown in State's Exhibit 47-B, do you recognize that? Yes. What is that? It's a standing lamp with the shade partially down. Okay. Let me ask you, first of all, did you inspect the lampshade itself to determine whether or not there was any blood on the lampshade? Yes. And what was the result of your inspection? There was, I saw no blood on the lampshade. Did you inspect the lampshade to determine whether or not you could see any tears? Yes. And what was the result? I didn't see any. All right. Let me just be more general. Did you inspect the lampshade to determine whether or not you could see any damage at all to this lampshade? Yes. And what was the result? I didn't see any damage. No creasing, no tears, nothing like that? No, outside of regular fraying wear along the rim but no tears, no dents, scratches, blood. Okay, let's talk about the visible portion. Was this a floor lamp of some sort? Yes, I said standing, a floor lamp is what I mean. All right, let's talk about part of the stem here that we can actually see in this photograph, leading up to the light bulb and the other area here that would hold the shade. Let's just start from the top down, okay? The portion of this lamp that would have held the lamp shade, did you inspect that to determine whether or not there was any damage to it? Yes. Was there any damage to the top part of that? No. Did you inspect it to determine whether or not you could see any blood on it? I did. What was the result? I found no blood. Let's go to the light bulb itself. Any damage that you could detect to the light bulb? No. How about blood on the light bulb? No, let's go from the portion down all the way to where it's hidden by the lampshade itself. Any visible damage to that part of the lampshade to that lamp stand? No. Any blood on that portion of the lamp stand? No. Now, did you continue down and did you inspect the lower portion of that lamp stand to determine whether or not you could see any damage? I did. And what was the result? I saw no damage. Any blood? No, sir. Can you describe the base to this lamp? As to what color or you mean, well, shape? Shape, yes. Probably not that, but it was rounded. Okay. I mean, I don't remember exactly. Okay. Did you look at it that day? Yes. What types of things were you looking for? Oh, I was looking to see if it had been moved. If there were any carpets indentations, which occur when an item has been on a carpet for a good while, that is what I was looking for. All right, besides blood and damage. All right, well, let's turn to blood and damage first. Any damage to the base of that lamp? No. Any blood on the base of that lamp? I didn't find any. All right, now, when you took a look at the base To see if you could see the other patterns that would indicate it had been moved. Could you see any other indentations or patterns on that carpet that indicated that thing had been moved? No. Or jostled? I didn't see any. Did the lamp appear to be in the position where it had originally been? Yes. And do I understand you to say that you basically then did a complete walkthrough of the family room looking at it in general, right? Yes. When you finished up walking through the family room, what is the next area of the house that you and the other officers went to? The, well, let me just back up here. Let me ask you a question here before I take you to another part of the house. When you finished, you had gone through the entry, the hallway, and now you have looked through the family room. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. At that time, did you form any opinions about what you had seen in that house at that point? No. Okay, why not? I mean, you had already seen the entryway, the hallway, and the family room. Why didn't you? Well, I hadn't finished with the entire scene. There was nothing visible to make me form any opinions. Okay. Outside of planning what evidence needed to be collected and so forth, well, why did you think it was necessary to see the remainder of the scene? Well, that's just good crime scene policy, not to make any judgments on what occurred until you see all of the area to get the entire picture. All right. What is the next area that you did look at? The kitchen. Okay. And describe for us, if you will, what the kitchen looked like when you first went in there. There was, what did you see? some blood on the floor more in the areas you step from the den or family room into the kitchen there was blood on the floor broken glass there was a vacuum cleaner lying on the floor there was a wine rack immediately to the right to the left there were some open drawers with some bloody cloth items on top of the drawers there was a few drops as we progressed through the kitchen i noticed there was some drops of blood on the floor leading to the utility room. Okay, did you look at, were you looking for anything specific when you went into the kitchen or were you just trying to get, take an overall view of the situation? No, when you conduct a crime scene like that, you just do an overall, try to spot things that naturally, like blood, that should not be there. And I saw blood and glass and the vacuum cleaner. That was the primary things. Oh, there was one thing I forgot. There was a knife on the counter dividing the kitchen from the family room. I forgot to mention that. There was a bloody knife laying on the edge of the counter. Okay, so you saw the knife on the counter. You looked through the kitchen. The other three officers staying with you during this time? Yes. Are you all talking as you are going through here? Yes. Okay. Are you all walking in single file in some sort of order? Or are you all just walking through there? How are you doing it? We were not walking in any single file. It's difficult to walk through those scenes when there was blood all over the floor and glass, but we were not we were trying not to step on things, but no, we were not in single file. Okay. After you had finished the kitchen, where did you all go to? The utility room. And what did you notice when you went into the utility room? Blood on the door. There was a cap on the floor, some blood on the floor and on the, uh, some machines in the utility room. Okay. You have gone through the living room, the kitchen, and the utility room. Had you noted blood on the floor in the hallway? Yes. Had you noted blood on the floor in the family room? Yes. Had you noted blood on the floor in the kitchen? In part of the kitchen? Yes. OK, Had you also noted blood on some parts of the floor in the utility room? Yes. Did you then have occasion to go out into the garage? I did. And what was the condition of the garage when you first went out there? Well, I noticed a window partially or, you know, raised, a cut screen. The overhead door was shut. Are you talking about after I finished, or just my initial just the initial walkthrough? Oh, okay. On the initial, the door was shut, the window was open, the screen was cut, and it was cluttered. Typical garage that was used for storage and some cluttered areas. Okay, well, when you went out there, were you looking for evidence of blood in the garage too? Yes, okay. Where were you looking? Primarily on the floor, of course, the doorways, and anything arm level or hand level? All right. Well, let's start with the floor then. Did you see any blood on the floor of the garage? No. And did you look for that? Yes. Did you go at that time? Did you go back to look at the overhead door and back the back door to the garage? Yes. Okay. And what were you looking for when you went back there to that garage door? Bloody prints or any type of floor evidence, uh, which would be maybe pieces of glass. From the kitchen floor because there was broken glass on the kitchen floor. I was looking for blood on the door. I wanted to see if the door was latched or not. Basically, that was it because I was making a plan of what to go back and do later in the garage. When you went over there to that area, were you looking for glass on the floor? Yes. Did you see any glass on the floor over there by that garage door? No. Were you looking for blood on the floor? Yes. Did you see any blood on that portion of the garage floor? No. Were you looking for evidence of blood on the garage door itself? Yes. And did you see any blood on the back door or the overhead door to that garage? None. Did you have occasion while you were in the garage then to go over to a window that was open? Yes, I did. Okay. And what types of things were you looking for in that part of the garage? The same thing, I was looking for a trail, be it blood, glass, disturbance that is, areas of areas disturbed to possibly follow the trail of an intruder? Okay, let's talk about this part of the garage floor. Do you see any evidence of glass on the floor? No. Blood on the floor? No. Did you have a chance to look at the window itself to look at it for evidence of blood? Yes, did you see any blood on that open window? None. Did you have a chance to look at the windowsill? Yes. Did you have a chance to examine it for evidence of blood? I did. And did you see any blood on the windowsill there at that window? And no, it had a fairly thick layer of dust over the entire windowsill. How about the items over there close to that to the window? Did you look at them for also for evidence of blood? Yes, I did. From head height down. Any evidence of any blood on any items close to that window? No. Okay. You had mentioned the windowsill and how it appeared that day, Mr. Cron. Let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 41-A and 41-B. Do you recognize those, sir? I do. And do they truly and accurately depict the window, a portion of the window, and the windowsill as they appeared on June 6th, 1996. Yes, the first one being 41-A being an inside shot, 41-B being a photograph taken from the outside. Is that right? That's right. First, in general, just show us what States Exhibit 41-A and 41-B show us. 41-A is a shot inside the garage directly down over the sill, the windowsill. It shows the length of the sill here. In the right-hand corner is part of a cat cage or an animal cage. And on the left is a, well, you see it better here, is an animal container or litter box container with a cardboard box on the left. It shows the cut screen on and on the outside brick sill. Okay, 41-B is a shot from the outside showing the inside, excuse me, from the outside aiming inside the window showing the cut screen. It was cut across the top and then down vertically. The flaps overlap the brick outer sill, the wooden inner sill, and the cage. Okay, you said the objects here on the left-hand side. Well, Actually, it's going to be the right-hand side of 41A. Is that some sort of animal cage? Yes. How did you determine that? Well, it was obvious. I mean, it had food bowls, water bowls inside. It had a wire across the wooden frame. It had a door with a latch on it. How many animals were in there that morning? I can't recall. I don't believe any. No, there wasn't one in that cage. Okay. So it's a cage, some sort of animal cage. No animals in there that morning. Is that right? Not at that time. There was another cage that had an animal in it, not this one. Where was that cage located? In the family room. When you were looking at this area, the windowsill portion of this window, what types of things were you looking for? Signs of an intruder going through it disturbed dust, footprints, blood, Any outside debris that might have been carried in through the clothing or shoes of the intruder, such as bark, mulch, any type of damp vegetation, just any signs that an entry and exit was made through the window, foreign material, and disturbed areas. Uh, Sir, did you find any scuff marks or shoe prints, foreign material, or any evidence whatsoever? That an entry had been made either in or out of that window shown in Stace Exhibit Number 41 A. No, there was a solid layer of dust along the entire length of the white windowsill and it was undisturbed. What do you mean, undisturbed? There was no streaks through it, no signs of movement through it. It was an even layer. It's sort of like new fallen snow. It was obvious that nothing had gone through it. Okay. At this point, the court then asks, does the jury need a break? And a juror said, yes, sir. And the court then says, all right, let's take a brief five-minute break right here. And we are going to do the same because this is well over an hour at this point. And I will be back uh, literally very, very shortly with another portion of the testimony of James Cron." So let's talk just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit about the testimony of Oki Williams. And I'm not quite sure where they were going with this. I think they're trying to set the stage of saying, hey, the family needed money and they wanted to go on vacation. And this was the reason for the crime, Um, just simply because Darren had gone into the bank, not Darley, Darren and applied for a $5,000 loan, which was not approved. And he tried yet again in order to saying, hey, if I give you some collateral, which he really didn't have, they would not give him this $5,000 loan um, unless he actually backed it up with essentially the same amount of cash that, uh, that they were going to give him the loan for. So that testimony was really short. They The defense was really trying to figure out where the questioning was going and what the importance of it was. Um, So I don't know. I I don't know if it's either here nor there, if it's going to play a part in the rest of the trial. I just know that that little snippet of information that was given by Okie Williams about the bank loan definitely put probably into the minds of the jury, well, hey, they didn't have the money that they wanted in order to go on vacation, so it might Give a motive? I don't know. Let's go ahead and talk just a little bit about what we've heard from James Cron so far. Uh, he first goes over his all of his education and his experience. And then we finally get into the meat of the thing where he says that he got a phone call from dispatch around five o'clock in the morning and that he lived about 15 minutes away from the house, the route to your home on Eagle Drive. The dispatcher, when they called him, didn't give him much information, but did say that the crime scene personnel asked if he, Cron, would meet them at Eagle Drive and that they had a homicide and they were trying to work it and needed his help. He said that he got there around 5.45 in the morning. However, in Officer Main's testimony, he said that Cron didn't arrive until 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, there is a little bit of a leeway here, as Cron mentions physically arriving in his vehicle at 545 in the morning. But Officer Main said, quote, we waited for James Cron to come to the location. He was then asked, Officer Main was asked, how long of a wait was that? And he responded with, quote, that was approximately 6 a.m. when he arrived. James Cron then says that he met with Sergeant Neighbors, Officer Main, and Sergeant Matt Walling. He asked the officers what he needed to look at, how many victims, where the crime scene was, if it was upstairs, downstairs, or both. He meets these guys outside the crime tape perimeter and talks with them as they walk inside the perimeter and closer to the house. And Cron's plan was to do a walkthrough to create some kind of game plan. So Kron says that he began walking the crime scene around six ten or six eleven in the morning. So this kind of puts a time frame of he spent about twenty to twenty five minutes talking with the officers. If we consider his timeline of showing up at five forty five in the morning, if we consider his timeline from Officer Main's perspective of six o'clock, he spent about ten or eleven minutes talking with the officers before walking into the crime scene. He further says that he went into the house with Walling and Main, not Sergeant Neighbors with him, just Walling and Main. He does mention seeing blood and medical supplies on the front porch. Uh, There is State's Exhibit Number 24, which shows a bloody rag or cloth, and I will have that on the website. He said that he noticed blood in the entryway and the hallway leading to the back room where the crimes occurred. He said at this point he's just observing, but then he says that the three other three officers were also there with him observing as well. But he said earlier that he just walked in with two of them, Walling and Maine. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting, and maybe I misheard that. Maybe I need to go back and listen. And he actually said that neighbors went in with them, but. I don't think so. They then bring up uh, States Exhibits 47-A and 47-B. Again, I'll have these on the website. And 47-A shows the flowers on the main table in the family room, and they are tipped over. So before, at the end of another testimony, I'm pretty sure it was at the end of Officer Maine's testimony, I talked about there's kind of some pictures that show them upright, and then there's pictures that show them on their side, but it's just in a a tiny little corner. And if you go back and listen to Officer Main's testimony, you'll find out that things were kind of moved around as they were going through this crime scene. Uh, Kron says that no blood was found on this flower arrangement. Um, No stems or anything were broken. I don't know if this was an actual flower arrangement or if it was uh, if it was real or if it was fake, you know, just for display. He also said that he didn't see any chips or anything broken off of the vase or even on the table where the flowers sat. They then talk about the exhibit 47 B. And this is that picture of the lamp. And in this one, it still shows the lampshade Hanging on the edge of the couch, it's not on the floor like in the testimony of Officer Maine. If you've been listening um, up to this point, you'll know that there was this several, several discussions were had in Officer Maine's testimony about the photographs of the lampshade. Some photos showed it on the edge of the couch, some showed it on the floor. And then there was a discussion in Maine's testimony if he knocked it off the couch and then put it back up on the couch after moving the files that were near there. Um, And this all ties in. Uh, So what I also found strange was that they talk about this lampshade. And what I find strange is that there is a hole, if you look at the top of the actual lampshade, the gold portion that has the fringes around the bottom, where a screw or a bolt would go that would adhere it to the top of the lamp. But in the photo, if you look around the area that would hold it, you know, around the light bulb itself, you can't actually see where this bolt or screw would go. So, you know, there's nothing sticking out that the the lampshade would actually hang on to, where then you would screw something on to keep it tight. But there could just be a hole at the top of the lamp, um, this area where it would hold the lampshade, just to hold it in place. If it's just a hole but then something would still have to go in there, right? A screw or a bolt or whatever it is in order to hold it in place. So where did that go? You know, did it even exist? You know, maybe they just had the shade balanced on it, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. So anyway, as James Cron walked from the family room to the kitchen, he noticed blood on the floor leading from the room to the kitchen. So from the living room or the uh, the main family room into the kitchen. He also noticed a uh, broken glass on the floor in the kitchen, um, a wine rack that he walked by, a vacuum laying on the floor and, quote, on the left. So if he's walking in to his left, to my understanding, that would be near the kitchen sink were some open drawers with bloody cloth items on top of the drawers. Now, this is where I kind of had a hold on a minute thought. Um, It's my understanding that when Officer Hamilton was taking fingerprints in the kitchen, he couldn't find any around drawer handles. Yet here was a drawer sticking straight open with bloody cloth items on top of some of these open drawers. Someone had to open, open those drawers, right? I mean, surely there would have been fingerprints there. James Cron then says that there were some drops of blood leading into the utility room from the kitchen. He then said he forgot to mention that a bloody knife was laying on the, quote, edge of the counter. And this is the one which separated the living room from the dining room. And it's what within this trial they have been calling the bar. He again was then asked if the other three officers were staying with him as he did this walkthrough. But again, I thought he only walked in with two people. You know, maybe we're going to get into this when he gets cross-examined. I don't know. He then said that the group of them, while doing this walkthrough, was not in a single file. And he was asked this twice, and both he was adamant they were not in single file. And this differs significantly from Officer Main's testimony. In Maines' testimony, he said that there were four of them walking the scene, including Cron, Walling, and Neighbors. But Cron, remember, at least what I think, said that Neighbors did not even go inside. A second, Main said in his testimony that they all entered in and walked the scene in single file, and when they were done walking the scene, they all took the same order, but in reverse, and they all left the scene in single file this totally differs from what James Cron says. And according to Officer Main's testimony for what it's worth, he began and continued to take photos until around six o'clock when Officer Main showed up. He, uh, or sorry, when James Cron showed up, Officer Main was taking the photos until six o'clock and then James Cron showed up and they all did this walkthrough. James Cron then says he, after he's walked through this kitchen, he walked into the utility room and noticed blood uh, along with the ball cap, the black ball cap on the floor in there. He then walked into the garage. He didn't see any blood on the floor in there. There were also no pieces of glass that had been dragged in from the kitchen floor in the garage. There was no blood on the window He also said that there was a fairly thick layer of dust on the windowsill, and this would have actually been, this walkthrough, would have been before Officer Hamilton arrived to do the fingerprint work. Now, because I thought, well, why is this, you know, undisturbed? Because evidently somebody had taken fingerprints from this. Well, no, Officer Hamilton had not yet been there. Officer Hamilton actually began his work around 10 o'clock in the morning after he had arrived around 9 and then finally, they talk about states exhibits 41 uh, A and 41 B. 41 A, I do not have, uh, but I do have 41 B. And this is essentially the picture from the outside looking at this cut screen. And he says, he being Cron, on the windowsill, he was looking for disturbance and disturbance of the dust. And he was also looking for any foreign material that might have been brought in from the outdoors into the garage. And he didn't see any. He also said that there was an entire layer of dust on this windowsill, completely undisturbed. And obviously nobody had touched it. He kind of related, kind of made it like, uh, like as if fall or as if, (laughs) sorry, as if snow had fallen and nobody had yet disrupted this snow. So it was still just this fine layer of undisturbed dust. So anyway, that will do it for this particular episode regarding the Darley Routier trial. And the next episode we will definitely go over more of Kron's testimony because his is uh, quite long and will go for quite some time. So I'm going to wrap this one up and then head right into recording the next one. And that one will be out very, very soon. So once again, thank you, thank you, thank you all for listening. I appreciate you all so, so much. And we will, you'll hear from me again really, really soon. Thank you.